Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 22, and it can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the, the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, my lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hands will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pause and say a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are alive, which means you're here. And we desperately need you. We really do. And so would you come and make yourself known? Would you pierce our hearts? Would you remove the scales from our eyes that we would see you? Would you soften whatever's hard? Would you give light to whatever's dark in our hearts? Would you give life to what, whatever is dead in our hearts? Uh, send your spirit and give power to your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Loving your enemies. How are you doing with that today? 
And who are your enemies anyway? You know, if we're honest, many of us aren't even comfortable with those questions. Many of us aren't even comfortable with language like that. It might sound too intense. For others of us, it's plenty intense, but it's plenty real. It fits just right. David had an enemy. It was King Saul. David didn't choose him. Saul chose David. Saul is now in full pursuit of David as we enter into this chapter of 1 Samuel. God has withdrawn his favor from King Saul, and he's named David as Israel's future king. And so, overcome by spite and envy, Saul is now absolutely obsessed with killing David. In chapter 22, Saul executes 85 priests, falsely accusing them with siding with David and harboring a fugitive and a traitor. And now in verse 2, we're told that he's enlisted 3,000 young men from Israel just to hunt David down in a remote corner of the desert. So David is on the run. By this point... He's hiding out in the crags of the wild goats, which sounds like a great name for a band, doesn't it? The crags of the wild goats. And the situation, I don't know if you caught it, is almost comical. It would be funny if it weren't so tragic. We're told that in verse 3, suddenly, for Saul, nature calls, as they say, And he needs to relieve himself. And of all the caves among the craggy cliffs of the crags of the wild goats, Saul chooses the one cave that David and his men just happen to be hiding in. You can't make this up. Saul, therefore, is a little, shall we say, occupied. He's vulnerable. I mean... Now's your chance, David. You can kill the guy who's trying to kill you. I mean, come on, he deserves it. We know it. Or forget vengeance. You can just put an end to this tiring hiding and running. David, you can do it. Yes, he can. Yes, he could have. But David doesn't. This is an incredible story about loving your enemy. By enemies, of course, the Bible isn't referring to uh, just those you don't like. Uh, They're not referring to those who have a thing against you justly. Rather, the Bible's pointing out those who oppose you or threaten you or threaten to harm you or take something from you, but unjustly and unrighteously. The hostility, it might be physical. It might also be emotional, like a verbally aggressive neighbor. Or it might be relational, like a person that's trying to poison all your friendships. It might be occupational. 
like a coworker who's just trying their best to make you fail. You know people like that? Do you have people in your lives today like that? Loving your enemies. You know, that combination of words is completely outrageous. But the words are so familiar that for Christians, the shock wears off all too easily, doesn't it? But the call to love your enemies, not only to resist revenge, but also to seek your enemies good, is one of the most unique, radical, historically unprecedented, humanly impossible teachings of the Christian faith. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Or as Jesus said famously in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus didn't just teach the lesson, you know. He lived the lesson, and he lived it to the uttermost. This Jesus, who not only allowed himself in love to be killed by his enemies, but also this Jesus who, even while being killed, prayed for his enemies, prayed for their forgiveness as he died to form a new spiritual family. Yes, comprised of, guess who, former enemies. There's no Savior like the Savior Jesus. There's no love like his love. Is there? Let the church say amen. David in this passage gives us a glimpse into the enemy-loving heart of Jesus. Let's draw out just six quick principles from this passage, shall we? Six of them. Number one, love your enemies by refusing to rationalize revenge. Love your enemies by refusing to rationalize revenge. Let's be straight. Retaliation feels good. Retaliation feels right. And sometimes the pressure to seek revenge comes from within. I'm angry, so I want to get you back. At other times, the pressure comes from those around us. Like with David, whose own men were urging him to kill Saul. Listen, payback will always be popular. Here's another thing we'll do. We'll spiritualize our hostility towards our enemy. We'll even try to justify our anger theologically like David's men were doing, if you notice, in verse 4, when they said, David, hey, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand for you to deal with as you wish. You know what that is? That's a fake Bible verse. 
nowhere to be found. God nowhere said that to David or to me. You know, God is always on my side when I'm mad, isn't he? Here's arrogance. Assuming that God always hates everyone that I hate. Sometimes we need to shut down the retribution pep rally. The one going on in our hearts and the ones going around among our circle of friends. Like David did in verse 7 when he sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. We need to rebuke bad counselors around us. Again, including the one, that counselor, as it were, in our own hearts. Because remember, vengeance will always win the vote. So love your enemies by refusing to rationalize revenge. But number two, love your enemies seeking their humbling but not their humiliation. Love your enemies seeking their humbling but not their humiliation. Even when you decide not to go nuclear on someone for wronging you, you know, it's still easy to try to pistol whip them in passing, right? David did not assassinate Saul, but here's what he did do. He did creep up to Saul unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, what is that? That is, in the first place, a form of taunting. But not only so, according to scholars, in the ancient world, cutting off the corner of a royal robe belonging to a king would have been a highly symbolic act. It would have been a symbol of disloyalty and rebellion. You know, I just ripped off a piece of your royalty. Huh? Which is why, as we're told in verse 5, David becomes conscience-stricken. And he expresses regret for what he's done. Sure, he didn't kill Saul, and that's admirable. But he did taunt him. He did diss him. Even when we choose not to destroy our enemy, it's easy to want to embarrass them. In front of their friends, at work, on social media. As Dr. King wisely put it in one of his many sermons on loving your enemies. At times we are able to humiliate our worst enemy. Inevitably his weak moments come and we are able to thrust in his side the spear of defeat. But this we must not do. Instead of seeking their humiliation... We should lovingly seek our enemies humbling before God. What's the difference? The former is for his destruction. The latter is for his good. You see, David's kindness exposed and softened Saul's evil heart. Has someone ever been so kind to you? That you feel terribly about the way that they've wronged you? Has someone ever loved you so much 
that it's brought you to your knees. We're told in verse 16, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, Saul said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. It's the perfect illustration of Romans 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, heaping the ashes of burning coals on your head was an ancient symbol of repentance. Putting ashes on yourself. The apostle is saying, love your enemy. Who knows? It might change their heart. Again, Dr. King is helpful here. Love has within it a redemptive power, he says. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. Dr. King continues, you just keep loving people and keep loving them even though they're mistreating you. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It's redemptive. Will you dare to love like that? Of course, sometimes it's not so simple. You know, even here, just two chapters later, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, we read this. Get it. Saul went down to the desert of Ziph, a different desert, with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. He's trying to kill David all over again, even after this moment of contrition and of sorrow. See, the Bible's so real. Loving our enemies doesn't guarantee change, but this much is true. Loving our enemies gives redemption a chance. Will you dare to hope like that before your enemies? Thirdly, love your enemies by honoring their office. Love your enemies by honoring their office. Again and again, David explains that he will not seek vengeance against Saul. Why? Because he says Saul is the Lord's anointed, which is an Old Testament way of referring to the king of Israel. In verse 6, for instance, David declares, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And verse 8 tells us, David went out to the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the King. He's talking to the one that's trying to kill him. My Lord the King. We're also told David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground as he spoke to Saul from a ways off. I mean, it's stunning, isn't it? 
I mean, who, who treats those who are opposed to you, those who are out to get you, those who threaten to harm you, who treats them with this kind of respect? David was committed to honoring the king even when the king was committed to killing him. He was still direct with Saul. Don't miss that, though. He told Saul the truth, as we saw in verse 11. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. David speaking truth. But even when the office holder has been awful, David maintains an unusual respect for his enemy because of his office. And so for us, that might mean showing appropriate honor to a parent, an office holder of sorts, or to an elected official, or to a boss, even when they oppose you, even when they threaten to harm you. This also means showing respect to an enemy simply because of their humanity, which is to say, because they hold the high office of being a bearer of God's image. Every single one of us being created, made, fashioned in the image of God. Dr. King, once again, is helpful here. He writes, when we look beneath the surface, beneath the impulsive evil deed, we see within our enemy neighbor a measure of goodness and know that the viciousness and evilness of his acts are not quite representative of all that he is. We see him in a new light. We recognize that his hate grows out of fear, pride, ignorance, prejudice, and misunderstanding. But in spite of this, we know God's image is ineffably etched in his being. Then we love our enemies by realizing that they are not totally bad and that they are not beyond the reach of God's redemptive love. You can love your enemies only to the degree that you consider their life precious. Will you? Will you today? Fourthly, number four, love your enemies by waiting on God's judgment. Here's a fun one. Love your enemies by waiting on God's judgment. I wonder if you noticed this. When David declared to Saul why he didn't kill him, again and again he appeals to God's judgment. God's role as judge of the universe. God's promise to return and judge all things and all people. And so David says in verse 12, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Or in verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Listen, forgiving your enemy absolutely is part of loving your enemy. But then there's this. We will never forgive 
and we will never forego revenge unless we trust that God is a God of justice. That he doesn't disregard the ways that you have been wronged. And that he must repay all wrongs against us and therefore we don't have to. This is precisely the logic of passages in the Bible like Romans chapter 12, verse 19, which says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, let's be honest. We are uncomfortable with such language, with such a vision of a judging God. But you have to wonder if that's partly because of the comforts and security with which we live daily here in the West. In other words, in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, among cities and villages that have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose peoples and daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, in such places as that, what will keep me from picking up the sword myself? Apart from a belief in God's final judgment of all violence, the call to love your neighbor, excuse me, the call to love your enemy will invariably die. This is the thesis, the argument of Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who wrote this, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Violence thrives secretly nourished by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. God won't pick it up, therefore I will. But what if God will? Would we love our enemies more resiliently, more patiently, if we waited on God's judgment instead of relying on our own? Would we learn to say with David, may the Lord avenge, may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me. That's his job. That's his prerogative. So my hand will not touch you. Of course, at this point, hearts cry for a word of mercy. But what about forgiveness? What about mercy? What about kindness? And so, yes, of course, that's in the deck of cards as well. Sixthly and lastly, love your enemies by marinating in God's mercy. Let's finish up. David was always aware of just how kind God had been to him. 
He invokes the name of God again and again and again because he trusts God and he believes that God is with him and for him, sinner though he may be. See, David saw in part what we see in fullness in the person of Jesus. Whom, you know, the Bible presents to us as one like David, the greater David. You see, because the gospel is the story of Jesus' love for his enemies. Enemies who sought to kill him in order to be kings and lord of their own lives rather than acknowledging his kingship. Or who, by their indifference to God, have attempted to erase God completely, also an act of humility. And I'm not talking about the Jewish religious leaders who conspired against him in the Bible. And I'm not talking about the Roman soldiers who executed him. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about us. But Jesus did not rationalize revenge, though he had every right to deal with us as he wishes. Nor does Jesus humiliate us, but rather he loved us and he humbled us because it's his kindness that leads us to repentant honesty about our brokenness. Like David, Jesus didn't take advantage of our vulnerability, but he loved us in our vulnerability. In fact, he did so by making himself vulnerable in humanity and in cruciformity. Jesus didn't simply wait on God's judgment, though. He took God's judgment, the judgment that we deserve, not least for our vengeful hearts and our hate for our enemies. And he did this not in a cave, but on a cross. This is the love of Christ for you and me. This is his mercy. This is the power of a transformed heart. One that by instinct nurses retaliation and retribution and revenge. And yet by the power of God's spirit can have a new heart. One like his. A heart that loves enemies. As we're told in Romans 5 verse 10, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. While we were enemies opposed to him, Christ loved me. This is good news. For those like us who struggle so much to love even those who bring the slightest of opposition against us. And yet here's the call and here's the charge. Will you love as you have been loved in the greater David, in Jesus, in the one who died to set you free? from that spirit of vengeance and angry morbidity 
Would you let him do that? Maybe for the first time today. This is an invitation to love. This is an invitation to life. Let's pray. So set us free, Spirit of Jesus, and help us to see the love of Christ for enemies, former enemies like us. Change our hearts and give us power to love like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's